Hi, this is Father Tim, and welcome to RTB, Read the Bible Podcast. RTB offers students a Bible reading plan with commentary and questions and answers as they go on the journey to read the Bible. Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to RTB as we are continuing this semester to go through the prophets. Tonight, we are going to finish the prophet Ezekiel. This is the third prophet of the third of the four major prophets in the prophetic literature. Last week, we covered Ezekiel chapters 1 through 24, and this week, we're going to cover chapters 25 through 48. And so before we kind of dive into that, just to kind of a review again of what we saw last week in Ezekiel. And that big question right from the start is who is Ezekiel? When is he he prophesying? And who is he prophesying to? And so we saw last week is that Ezekiel is a priest. And what you have in Ezekiel is somewhat strange, somewhat higher uh, language and uh, a little bit more strange and difficult of a prophet to understand what he's preaching. And what he's preaching is very much the holiness of God and the importance of temple worship. And that's pretty much what we would expect in terms of Ezekiel as a priest. And so who is he preaching to? He's preaching to the, uh, the people of Judah and Jerusalem. But the unique thing about Ezekiel is that he is preaching, at least in the beginning of the book, as he is already in exile. So he starts that book, the first half of the book of Ezekiel, as by the river Kabar, and Ezekiel is preaching to those who have already been taken away from Jerusalem, out of exile from the Babylonians. And it's around the year 593. And for the first 24 chapters, that which we covered last week, it is everything is happening before the fall of Jerusalem. So again, Ezekiel is in exile in Babylon, but before Jerusalem is going to fall. And he is warning the people through various signs, sign acts, various visions that he has seen that uh, judgment is coming upon Jerusalem and the people need to be concerned and they need to repent as they always so often need to repent. But he does, as he does so many other times, promises hope and the possibility of being saved, the possibility of redemption. And what we're going to see in this last half is we're going to see, largely speaking, um, we're going to see from chapter 25 to 48, Ezekiel preaching after the fall of Jerusalem and seeing what God will do and what God will prophesy in response to the fact that now Jerusalem has fallen. And just a couple of key things, again, to kind of remember and put this in picture as the entirety of the book of Ezekiel, because if you read one part one week and one part the other, you can kind of mix. So a couple of big visions that happened to Ezekiel right at the beginning of the book was as he is in Babylon, he sees this vision of the glory of the Lord. And the glory of the Lord is representative of the presence of God, which was supposed to dwell only in the temple, that as Originally, the Israelites were moving from slavery in Egypt out through the desert. They built a tent, a tabernacle, where the glory of God dwelled. And the glory of God then dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem. Eventually, when, that, when the Israelites finally settled down and the kingdom was united under David. So the temple is this absolute center place of worship. It's the place where the glory of God truly dwells. But Ezekiel, at the beginning of his book, sees the glory of God outside of the temple. 
And then we saw the reason that the glory of God was outside the temple was that there was great idolatry happening with the leaders of the Jewish people, that even the priests were offering worship and sacrifice to idols and to false gods. And so the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, which is absolutely, absolutely unheard of for the people and would be catastrophic. And this actually makes sense because what we then see and what we know is coming in Ezekiel's prophesying is that the temple will be destroyed. And so the glory of God, the sort of presence of God, leaves the temple before the temple is destroyed. And as we ended chapter 24, we actually saw that there was this allegory or this sort of sign act where Ezekiel's wife would die because so much of this earlier chapter in Ezekiel is talking about um, the people of Israel and Judah being the beloved of God, of actually being married to God, but their own unfaithfulness or their idolatry was viewed in light of a marital context. And so you actually have here at the end of chapter 24, right where we're going to pick up today, is we see Ezekiel's wife dies, and she dies quickly, and he's not allowed to even mourn over her. And that's the idea that, okay, uh, Babylon is coming, and they're coming quick, and they will destroy what was supposed to be the bride of God, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel. And so that's where we ended was this allegory understanding that Ezekiel's wife is passing away and there's not even time to lament, that this destruction will be quick, will be um, merciless in many ways, and totally destroy Israel and Jerusalem. And so that happens. Okay, so now where we're going to pick up today is chapter 25. And just to kind of look big picture over the second half of Ezekiel, you can define you can divide the chapters quite, quite simply into three parts. The first part is from chapter 25 to 32, and that is judgments against the nations. As we have seen in so many other of the prophets, this sort of image is still the same, this call for judgment, especially for the people of Israel, but then also for the entire nations. And so we see that. But then usually what happens is after judgment, there is hope for restoration and return. And so what you see in chapter 33 to 39 is Ezekiel's ministry and message after the fall of Jerusalem. So that's kind of what you see. And that's kind of the the, one of the central areas that we'll focus on today. We'll jump quickly through those first seven chapters and then eventually end for the last eight chapters or nine chapters. Chapters 40 through 48 is Ezekiel's temple vision, this grand vision of this new temple. And so those kind of three sections make up the, very, uh, the, the last half of Ezekiel, very clearly divided. You can see they're really three distinct sections, and they don't really flow quite easily. You can see a, a clear break. So let's dive in, going right to Ezekiel chapter 25. Now, as we're looking at this section, this is the judgment against the nations. Usually I like to start right in the, in the Bible, reading right from the very beginning, but As we look at the greater part and the importance of this book of Ezekiel, this is not the most important section. So we're going to skip largely through a lot of this, and we're not going to read a ton of it. What I just want you to see is that basically what you see first in chapter 25 is prophecy against these smaller nations, the nations of Ammon, the nation of Moab, the nation of Edom, and the nation of Philistia, that these places will seek judgment. Then the later judgment focuses largely on two other bigger nations, namely Tyre 
and Egypt. Tyre is located to the northwest of Israel and Egypt, as you know, to the southwest. Okay, And these are larger nations. And it's kind of interesting, as you look at the judgment that comes from them, the overarching literary structure of how that judgment comes to be is exactly the same, where there are oracles of condemnation, and then there is a lament for the nation itself. Then there's another oracle of condemnation, and then there is a lament for the individual king of that nation. Okay, And so you see that for both Tyre and Egypt. And as you go through your Bibles, you can now open them up to Ezekiel chapter 26. In Ezekiel chapter 26, we actually see one of those moments where, again, we actually have a, uh, a date where it's encouraging you to really put the, um, put the dates of the, um, of, the, of the scripture passages in your Bible. So chapter 26 opens up in the year 587 B.C., into the year 586 BC. So we are now squarely within the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem being, being happening. So as this Jerusalem is being destroyed, he's also revealing to the people that the nations will be destroyed. So you have both of these working together. So Jerusalem will be destroyed and the nations will be destroyed side by side. So now what I want you to do is go ahead and jump over to Ezekiel chapter 28. Because this is really going to be one of the only major sections that we're going to cover for this first section of the Judgment of the Nations. Because there is a very interesting passage in Ezekiel 28 where we actually see the lamentation over the king of Tyre. And I want to read this because we'll read this together and you'll kind of, as you read, you can kind of see the early church saw a very clear allegory and understanding of this passage from the king of Tyre. So this is the Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, carnelian, topaz, and jasper. Chrysolite, beryl, and onyx, sapphire, carbuncle, and emerald, and wrought in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. With an anointed guardian cherub, I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created, till iniquity was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and the guardian cherub drove you out from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought forth fire from the midst of you, and it consumed you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. So you see this very interesting passage referring to the king of Tyre. And 
At this point, we don't have much on the king of Tyre. There's quite a bit that's prophesied about him being in the Garden of Eden with all these precious stones. And he kind of makes yourself wonder what is really going on here. And so, while he is certainly talking about this, this kingdom of Tyre itself, the early church fathers actually saw this as pointing to what happened with Satan. That this is how sin and evil enters into the world. First and foremost, even before Adam and Eve bring sin and evil, that uh, Satan, the evil one, is actually an angel created by God to be good. It's actually the tradition of the church, and it draws it largely from Ezekiel here, this passage, and then early church fathers expound on this, that Satan is actually not just an angel, the highest of the angels, anointed a guardian cherub placed on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the fire of God. He's actually referred to as a seraphim sometimes, as, as a burning one, one who, who actually basks in the glory of God. But all of the angels, just as we have to choose to love God, the angels too have free will and they have to use their free will to choose to love God. And so the understanding of the church is that Satan is actually a fallen angel who chooses to use his free will not to follow God, but to go against God. And the reason that he was, was, was pride and envy is actually what we actually see. The book of wisdom talks about envy. And here it talks about that your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you into the ground and I turned you to ashes upon the earth. And so casting to the ground is that Satan is taken from this realm of heaven and actually come here to the earth. And so now Satan, in many ways, is actually part of the cause of so much destruction, so much sin, so much evil in the world. And yet, why does God allow this? Well, God allows this because he can actually bring a greater good. And that's one of the key fundamental insights of Christianity as a whole, is that the only reason that evil exists in the first place is because of our free will. But then the only reason that God doesn't just get rid of it altogether is that he can bring something good out of it. And so as you see this judgment and you see this destruction in the Old Testament in particular, the Lord is using these things or allowing these things to happen so that a greater good can come out of it. So you actually see in this exile, you actually see Jerusalem actually come out stronger at the end of the day. Okay, But a very interesting passage, we actually see Satan as um, or the king of Tyre as an allegory to understand who Satan was and how he came to be. Okay, moving on, um, another p- moment of you can put in your Bible is chapter 29. We have another year marker, and now we have in the 10th year, in the 10th month, and the 12th day is the word of the Lord comes to me, and that is the year 587 B.C. Uh, that's at chapter 29, verse 1. In chapter 29, verse 17, there's a reference of the 27th year. So there's a little bit of kind of then jumping out of the place. That would be 571 B.C., okay? But that one is a minor marking. It's not as important because you don't actually see a full, you don't actually see a full uh, revelation. One thing to note, and when we move to chapters 29, 30, 31, and 32, then the oracles and the judgment comes against Egypt. And there is a lot we could say. I'm going to largely skip over it. But if you can look at the beginning on chapter 30, verse 3, it actually says that the day is near, 
The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. We will see this theme. I want to introduce this just now. The theme of the day of the Lord, because it will come forward in many of the other minor prophets. The day of the Lord is this day of judgment, but there's also this sort of mysterious understanding of hope. I firmly believe that ultimately the day of the Lord is pointing to uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. A day that is certain judgment. There is destruction and sin, um, but yet the Lord allows this. He allows this evil to happen even to himself so that a greater good can come about. So I just want to introduce that the day of the Lord is a great theme that will come up much later. Um, a few more year markers, 587 B.C. we actually see in chapter 30, verse 20. And then in chapter 31, another year marker, once again, 587 B.C. And so chapter 32 has a lamentation over Pharaoh. That has another year marker for 585 B.C. And there's just a few other things that you start to see, again, very classic language that repeats itself throughout all of the, prof all the prophets is 32 verse 7 when it says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. This language comes to play much more fully in the book of Revelation later on, as the understanding of the darkening of, uh, of the moon and the starkening of the stars. It's a symbolic use of understanding judgment and eventually, in one sense, the end of the world. Okay? So we actually start to move a little bit more towards kind of seeing this sort of judgment and destruction as a prefigurement for the end of the world. Okay? There's another year marker in chapter 32, verse 17. It says in the 12th year. So this is again 586 to 585 BC. So largely this judgment section here is, um, is understanding we are right in this main section of, of as judgment is happening to Jerusalem. They're not the only ones. Judgment is happening to anybody who sins and falls away. Okay, now moving into chapter 33 through 39, Ezekiel's ministry and message after the fall of Jerusalem. So what we see here is what is the response of God to Ezekiel in the moment of this destruction. And what we see is, again, a certain sense of repetition, as, as often does in the prophets. So if you go to chapter 33, verse 7, it says, So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked, to turn from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity but you will have saved your life. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we waste away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn his, from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The next section there, you can read that entire section. Basically, it talks about that the people will be judged for their iniquity. 
or they will be rewarded for their righteousness. This sense of personal responsibility. We actually already saw this. The same thing, this needing for the watchmen, this prefiguring of bishops and priests, overseers, to warn the people about sin, to be honest and to tell them. And then the people often respond, that doesn't seem fair. (laughs) But again, it's just so important to see that God does not desire people to face judgment. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, it says. He just wants repentance. So all of this Old Testament understanding of exile and famine and concern is rehabilitative in nature, that the Lord is trying to call them back. But of course, we don't often see that. And so you see the people respond in 33 verse 17, Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. It ends, O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. So again, this is a very important actually kind of development of personal understanding of judgment um, and responsibility within the house of Israel. Okay, chapter 33, verse 21, we have another sign and year marker. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has fallen. So this is 585 B.C. So the city has been attacked, two years have fallen, someone escapes and comes and gives Ezekiel this notice that the city has fallen. Jerusalem has been destroyed, okay? Now God is going to kind of unpack what this means through Ezekiel, and ultimately this section here, we then see a beautiful sense of hope. Um, sometimes, as the other prophets, there was that book of consolation or book of comfort, a section within the prophets that, that really speaks to that. You can refer to kind of chapters 34 through 37 as, these, um, as Ezekiel's sort of book of comfort, that there's going to be hope in the midst of this judgment. And so we see this in chapter 34, the first part, though, is not necessarily hope or, or, or good thing. We actually see, again, why this happens. And who does God hold responsible first and foremost? It is the leaders, the shepherds of Israel. He calls them false shepherds. So reading chapter 34, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Ho, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the crippled you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. Jumping down to verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherd, 
and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So a stunning, stunning uh, word of judgment against the leaders, the false shepherds as Jesus or as God refers to them. And you see, what are the things these shepherds didn't do? Well, it is, in fact, everything that Jesus does to heal the lame, to, to seek out the lost, right? Isn't that what Jesus says? That I am the good shepherd. I have come to seek what is lost, right? And there's also a line in the New Testament where Jesus is with the crowd of people and it says he has pity on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So when Jesus comes... Again, we can only read this book, this Old Testament book, in light of the New. Jesus is saying, ah, this wasn't just talking about this time before the destruction of Jerusalem. This continues even now that the people of Israel are not feeding the sheep. And that Jesus sees that and he has pity on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. But then what is the good news? That I will be their shepherd that God is going to take responsibility and sort of fix the problem for himself. And so, chapter 34, verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As the shepherd seeks out his flock when some of his sheep have been scattered abroad, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the fountains and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and upon the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on fat pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the crippled, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will watch over. I will feed them in justice. So God is, going, God is announcing through the prophet Ezekiel that he himself will shepherd, will lead the people. And of course, this is so clearly understood that when Jesus refers to himself as I am the good shepherd, he's saying, I am fulfilling what Ezekiel talked about. Jesus, again, knows exactly who he is, what he's saying, and why he's saying it. Even such little details that some of the gospel writers get, that when Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes and feeds the people, what does he have them do first? Before he gives them food, he has them sit down. And there's even a little section in the gospel where it says that there was a small patch of grass there. Psalm 23, that I will lie down in green pastures, right? So that's is all so beautifully intertwined that we see that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd to come and feed the sheep, especially in this moment when the shepherds have not. It says later in verse 22, I will save my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, or it's, you can say sheep and goats. And I will set up over them one shepherd, 
my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Later on in that chapter, it just says again that I am the Lord, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And he ends that chapter saying, And you are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, says the Lord God. So this is so important because we see Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd, that God is the one who's going to send the shepherd. But he also says something very interesting too, that there will be one ruler, one leader, my prince David. And there's actually kind of an interplay. If we look at this, there's God says that he's going to be the shepherd. There's going to be one leader, but then he also appoints David. And what you also see here again is an understanding of the papacy. The understanding that Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the high priest. He is the king. But he is going to give some of that leadership, that kingship, that authority to another who will be, a certain sense, um, the prime minister, the prince of the king of David. We saw that in Isaiah 22, the one who looks over the house. And so again, you actually see both Christ as good shepherd, but also there will be another who is a shepherd, a leader, a father even the Pope. And of course, priests and bishops are supposed to imitate this on a smaller level, but he says one shepherd, referring to Jesus himself first, who has the ultimate authority. Okay? All right. From there, moving on, we're going to skip chapter 35. There's judgment against Israel's enemy, Edom. Um, and to move into chapter 36, where you start to see blessings for Israel, and you start to see a new heart and a new spirit. Um, in chapter 36, verse 8, we read, But you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they will soon come home. For behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown, and I will multiply men upon you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and be fruitful. I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times, and you will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What you start to see in this section of blessings for Israel is language that is almost exactly the same as the very opening of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis, where Adam is called to till and to keep the garden, where Adam and Eve are called to be fruitful and multiply. And so what he's saying is, I am for you, the people, as he's already said, I am against the shepherds. I will shepherd you. I am for you, the people, and you will be fruitful and multiply. Blessings are coming to you. So what is he saying? There's a new creation that is coming. And from here on out, you're just going to see tons of new things. The first one that we see is a new creation. Okay. How does this new creation then come about? What is this all about? Well, he's going to come with a new heart and a new spirit. So we have now in Ezekiel chapter 36, we actually have a section that we read and will read this Saturday evening at the Easter Vigil. It's a beautiful passage, wonderfully written, and we'll just read it in whole here. So it says in Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, 
but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. For I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to observe my ordinances. You shall dwell in the land which I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel that he's going to act for the holiness of his name. That is for his sake, again, that the, he was, these are the people that are supposed to be the sign for the world and they haven't lived up to what they were created for. And so God is going to kind of take things into his own hand. And how he's going to do this is going to sprinkle clean water upon you that will cause you to have a new heart and a new spirit. Why we read this at the Easter Vigil is it's actually uh, the reading that comes, I believe, forgive me if I'm wrong on this, I believe it's the last Old Testament reading. And what happens as soon as the readings are done with the Old Testament, or as soon as the readings are done in the Easter Vigil, is baptism. The moment when we are sprinkled clean with water and we are totally reborn, a new creation that is able to follow a new law. So where the old law of Exodus was written on stone tablets, and then that stone is representative in a certain sense of the heart of the people, now we will have new hearts, natural hearts, where we'll have a new heart, a heart of flesh, and we'll have a new spirit. And the early church fathers all saw this as baptism, and they saw the new spirit as the Holy Spirit, that the power of God comes in, transforms us, cleanses us of our sins, and we now are able to actually follow the law. So we have a new creation, a totally new creation, and a new law. So you could say there's a new exodus that is going to lead us to a new homeland. So there's a new, exit, a new creation, a new exodus, and then even a new homeland, or we could say a new kingdom. So, Ezekiel 20 or 36, a very, very well-attested passage by so many church fathers. We understand this as pointing forward to baptism, the day we receive this new heart, this new spirit. And we can actually then live the, the commandments. Chapter 37 is another very famous and um, well-attested section. It's about uh, the valley of dry bones. And so we'll read a portion of that where it says, chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me round them, and behold, there were very many upon the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, 
and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. Skipping down. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole... Actually, we'll go back. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the Spirit, Son of man. Prophesy and say to the Spirit, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O Spirit, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the Spirit came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great host. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, I will bring you home into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, says the Lord. So the context of this valley of dry bones, in a certain sense, there's a lot written and a lot of confusion because we understand this as Christians as pointing to two different things. Or better to be saying that when we read the Old Testament, there's oftentimes a, a short-term or a temporary fulfillment and a full later fulfillment. So you actually read, and some of your Bibles might even say that, because you read this and you, you say, oh wow, it's about rising from your graves. This must be about resurrection. And the answer is, it absolutely is about resurrection. But I can tell you, my Bible actually says this is not about resurrection. <laughs> there was a strange time when people said there's no way this could be about resurrection. And it's just, and, and you'll see a lot of stuff even today written that says that. But it fails to understand how prophecy works and how there's temporal fulfillment and greater fulfillment. So the context is the people are lost in exile, right? That their city is destroyed and now they're dying because they're in the city and they've, they've, they're in Babylon and they will begin to die. So what are we going to do with these bones, with this, <laughs> these people that was supposed to be the people of God who are now dying outside of the promised land? And so one, the temporal fulfillment is God saying that, listen, these bones are the whole house of Israel that are dying outside with no hope. And God says, I will bring you home to the land of Israel, that you will be taken out of exile and come back home to the promised land. But then he does it with such strange language of, I will have you rise, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. So he's using this language both to just say there's going to be a sort of national restoration that the people of Israel, and it's important he actually says the whole house of Israel, both Israel, North and South, Israel and Judah, will come back home and be saved. But how? Ultimately, through resurrection. Again, we need to start moving at this point in the, in the book to understanding that so many of these prophecies are prophesying to the end times, the end of the world, when there will be final judgment, when after we die, when our bones, in fact, bones is probably all that will remain, will be given new life that we will rise from the dead and go to where? Our true home. Where is our true home? It's not on earth. It's not in Israel. It's ultimately in heaven. 
And that's what you actually start to see in this next third section. But even before we go that back to that, what is it that allows us to go home? What is it allows us that actually allows us to rise from the dead? Why does the Lord do this? Well, you have to read chapter 36 and 37 together. Because we have been cleansed of our sins, because we have been given a new spirit, because we have a heart of flesh, that we're not supposed to be dry bones. <laughs> and it is this new spirit that will raise us from the dead. I will put my spirit within you, he says at the end of 37, and you shall live. And you shall be placed in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so Jesus, as he does his ministry, also shows that he has the power to raise people from the dead, both for his own foreshadowing that he is going to rise from the dead, but also to understand that we too are going to go and follow where he is and ultimately be at home with him in heaven. So chapter 34 um, with the, the shepherds, chapter 36 and chapter 37 are, are some of the most important, potent chapters in all of Ezekiel. It's kind of this core hope that is absolutely directly fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Um, and, and so many little details of that are, are all throughout the Gospels. Um, I'll skip a good section as well in chapter 37. There's a parable about the two sticks and about how there's um, basically all you need to know on that is you could read that and understand it now that one stick refers to the kingdom of Judah and one stick refers to the kingdom of Israel or Ephraim and how eventually that there will be union, that there will be a united, that these two sticks, it's an allegory, these two sticks are separate now, but they ultimately will be united. And God says in that, my servant David shall be their king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. So there will be one leader over united kingdom. He says again in the end of 37, verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will bless them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in the midst of them forevermore. So promise of a new covenant. So you have a promise now so far of new creation, new exodus, new kingdom, new covenant, and new sanctuary, or what we'll then see now is a new temple. And that's essentially what the entirety of the rest of the book is. One quick note on chapters 38 and 39, there's a story of a prophecy against Gog and Magog. This is a very unique passage. There's much that could be said, and there's a lot of mis there's a lot of um, uh, things that we just actually don't even know, some speculation about this. You actually see Gog and Magog come back in the book of Revelation as well. And just in short, it's sort of a, an understanding for um, evil, that they represent a certain evil against the people of Israel. So many of people saw Gog and Magog as representing Babylon, as this, as this sign of evil, and Babylon often represents evil. But that ultimately evil will fall, and so that's why chapter 39 is the fall of Gog. And it will actually be this fall that will help people know who God is. Um, and essentially that evil will be destroyed. Okay? But now let's go in the third section, chapters 40 through 48, because we have 
now a new section where we see this new temple, okay? This is, as you're reading, it might be the most difficult portion to read, maybe the most boring portion to read, because you're reading about measurements and drawings of the temple that probably don't give you great insight, okay? So I just want to kind of take away the key pieces and maybe a couple of insights that might help you make a little bit more sense of this to try to take some things away. First, again, chapter 40, we have a timestamp. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was conquered, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me. So this is the year 573 B.C. So this is well after the fall when they've, of Jerusalem, and they've been in Babylon for a while. And this is the vision. The hand of the Lord was upon me and brought me in the visions of God into the land of Israel and set me down upon a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city opposite me. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a line of flax and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. So Ezekiel has a vision of a man who takes him to see, he takes him to a high mountain in Israel where eventually he's going to see a temple. The rest of chapter 40, you can skip a big part because he's just going to talk about being brought into the outer court, to the north, to the south, to the inner court, the inner court on the east, the inner court on the west, and that there's measuring, and then there's a chamber with a door. He's describing the temple. This all has to be understood in context to Leviticus, the rules for the priests, and Exodus, where after they receive the law, most of the book of Exodus, people don't realize how much of the book of Exodus is actually just describing how the Israelites are to build the temple. And so we have this man who has this appearance, this strange appearance, which shows his divinity. So you can picture in one sense, I believe it is likely an allegory for this is Christ showing um, his temple to Ezekiel. But in short, it is a divine oracle on some sense. It doesn't have to be. It could just be an angelic um, sort of oracle. But then there are priests. Chapter 41 just continues. We go to the nave, the inner room, the most holy place. Chapter 42, again, the inner court. Um, it again talks about priests and there's different offerings that happen. Now chapter 43, it starts to get good. The glory of the Lord entering the temple. We're coming full circle. The glory of the Lord had left. Now, guess who's coming back? The glory of the Lord. Ezekiel 43. Afterward he brought me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was like the vision which I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the vision which I had seen by the river Kabar, and I fell upon my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the sons of Israel forever. He then continues down a little bit and then says, Behold, this is the law of the temple. And then it goes back to more talk about the altar, the dimensions, and the priesthood. So this vision is the temple is back. This is a new temple. 
where the glory of the Lord is, and this is where God says he is going to dwell forever. Okay? So hang on to that for a second, because then in chapter, we just need to understand that what happens there is that the glory of the Lord comes back into the temple. It's back. Okay? Because then in the next chapter, there's something very interesting that happens. We can read chapter 44, and I'll just read this section and then kind of explain it. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And he said to me, This gate shall remain shut, and it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. And so chapter 44, there is this strange passage about this closed gate that will not be opened because the glory of the Lord has entered by it. So now we got to think about what is this pointing to? And what did the early church see? How did the early church understand this passage? You might be surprised or maybe not surprised at this point to see that the early church understood this as foreshadowing Mary and Mary as her virginal conception of Christ, virginal birth, and ever virgin, perpetual virginity. Because when does the glory of the Lord ultimately come back to earth? Or when does the glory of the Lord ultimately come back? Is the fullness of the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament temple? Because the temple is currently destroyed. It will be rebuilt. But where does the fullness of the temple come? When the Holy Spirit comes to, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and Mary says yes to the Lord. And what is the verb that even Mary describes, or that is described in the Gospel of Luke, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the Word tabernacled among us, it became a tent. It became a temple. And so the glory of the Lord entering the world is Jesus, is Jesus Christ being incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary becomes this new temple for the Lord, a closed gate whereby God comes in and then Mary's perpetual virginity will actually um, be intact. This fits very well with the understanding of Jerusalem is often referred to as daughter Zion this bride, this woman who is pure and lofty and set apart unlike any other. And so it is Mary who is pure, holy, lofty, set apart unlike any other, who is the daughter of all of Israel, who receives the King of Israel, Jesus Christ himself, and serves as this temple to bring, to bring Jesus to the world. It's a beautiful, beautiful sense, okay? So you actually see a couple different fulfillments of this because I also said that when Mary presents Jesus in the temple, this is also a foreshadowing that the glory of the Lord actually then goes for the first time <laughs> back into the temple. So until Jesus is actually in the physical temple, right, the glory of the Lord is not fully there. But the glory of the Lord, first and foremost, is understanding the power of, of God, God himself, who dwells among us. That God in Ezekiel is referred to as Emmanuel. God is with us. That God wants to be with his people. And so this is just an incredible thing to see that the temple 
and even Mary is foreshadowed, and even her perpetual virginity. Now, the rest of the chapter then just kind of goes through, there's more about Levitical priests, there's the holy district, that where is this temple located, um, and then there's other ordinances of this temple before we get to this last two chapters with the water flowing from the temple. So big takeaways about this temple vision and this image, because you can get so lost in a lot of the details, because two things to point out. How big is this temple, and where is this temple? How big is this temple? It has all these specific measurements that scholars have looked at this and found out that the measurements of this temple is actually much, much, much larger than the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That this is not supposed to be a physical temple that we're talking about. The actual location of this temple, according to uh, Ezekiel chapter 45, is also not in Jerusalem, but is actually in kind of central portion of Israel, between Samaria, or between Judah, or sorry, between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So what does this all mean? What it just means is that, um, actually, and one more thing, that there's also just a lot of, a lot of hidden things, that there are multiples of 50 in some of the numbering of, of this sort of thing, which a lot of scholars have seen as understanding that this is a sign of freedom and jubilee, that every 50 years the Jewish people would have this jubilee year of celebration. So what this points is that the temple is one huge, and it's central. That the temple will form a central aspect of what it means to worship God, to be God's people, because it's also going to be the central place where God will dwell. Okay? But it's not supposed to be a um, physical rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. That is key. Because I will just say right now, you have two, two images of this in the church today. Because two more fulfillments of this prophecy. One is that, where does God, what temple does God dwell in today for us? Well, it's in the tabernacles, same word, in all of our Catholic churches. That the word becomes flesh in the Eucharist and dwells among us. That it no longer has this this, um, physical location in Jerusalem, but it has a central part that expands throughout all the whole world. And it's actually, the Eucharist is described as the source and summit of our faith. The central aspect, in many ways, of our faith is on this Eucharist and this temple. But the other thing is to understand that this temple is a heavenly temple. It is, and actually this city, this new Jerusalem, this new temple, is a heavenly Jerusalem. That ultimately, that our real homeland comes all the way at the end of the world, when we will be with God forever in that city and that temple. But that's where God wants us to be. Which is why at the end of the day, the book of Ezekiel is very highly unfulfilling unless you pair it with the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation, which is also a very difficult book to understand, makes sense in light of this new image because what is, how does the book of Revelation end? With this bride, a new city, a temple coming out from the sky where, G- where the voice of God in Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. New creation, new exodus, new kingdom, new covenant, new temple, new priesthood. Ultimately, new heavens and new earth. Everything is made new in Jesus in this new heavenly realm. That that's actually where we're called to be with God forever. Okay? So that's why I think the book of Ezekiel is super important because it actually fulfills so much of what the book of Revelation is pointing towards in that end times fulfillment of, 
of our ultimate destiny to be with God forever, but that God wants to be with us, okay? All right, two quick chapters to cover as we close out this book. Chapter 47, because there's another very important um, image that we see from this temple. Chapter 47, we see water flowing from the temple. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. And the water was flowing down from below the right side of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me round the outside to the outer gate towards the east, and the water was coming out on the right side. Going eastward with a line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, and it was up to the loins. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through. The water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back along the bank of the river, and as I went back, I saw upon the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and the other. And he said to me, The water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. And when it enters the stagnant waters of the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature which swarms will live, and there will be many fish, for this water goes there that the waters of the sea may be fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to Eneglam, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be very many, will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they are to be left for salt. And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food, their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit from every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So this image of water flowing from the temple show, and it gets deeper as it goes, helps reveal that the cleansing water of baptism brings about this new kingdom, which brings about new fruit that will be for all creatures that there will be fishermen that will go out and bring all sorts of fish from the sea. We see that in the apostles going out and casting their nets and becoming fishers of men. We see that at the resurrection, there is a great shoal of fish, 153 fish that are gathered in to show that after Jesus' resurrection, that it is his living waters that will give life to the world and will take away, in this case, the sort of stagnant waters and make them fresh. The other thing that the church saws is that where does this water come from? Or where would we first see this fulfillment of this water? Well, again, it is Jesus. Shocking, right? On the cross, when he is stabbed, and blood and water flow. And so water flows from the temple. Jesus refers to his own body as the temple of his body. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So on the cross we have water flowing from the temple which is a symbolic of baptism which is this water that makes fresh and gives new life. And gives not new life not just for the people of Israel not just for the north and the south but for the whole world. The great variety. And that's what we see. Chapter 48 just shows again the tribal portions you have all 12 tribes of Israel to see that this 
water will flow to the whole world and it'll get deeper and more beautiful and more abundant the longer it goes. That this river, the rivers of living waters that flow from Christ don't have uh, a limit. They just get deeper and deeper and deeper. And so this book of Ezekiel ends describing all of the different portions that the um, 12 tribes of Israel will see. And we actually see that they, each of them get three gates on each of the sides. And you'll see this in the book of Revelation as well, that the 12 apostles form this new gate to this new temple. And the book of Ezekiel ends that the name of the city will henceforth shall be the Lord is there. So Ezekiel shows us, well, where is the Lord? Well, Ezekiel shows us that the Lord is in the temple and that the Lord is very concerned with, with priestly offering, with worship, but understanding that all this Old Testament stuff, destruction, judgment, ultimately points to a new temple, Jesus Christ, who wants to be with us forever, but will ultimately not be with us in full forever until the end of the world where there will be a new temple that comes down from heaven where that Jesus himself... <laughs> is the new temple and the second coming will come again to judge the living and the dead and he will carry us to be with him forever. So everything in the old points to the new but points to a new. A new creation, an old creation points to a new creation. An old exodus points to a new exodus. An old kingdom points to a new kingdom. An old covenant points to a new covenant. An old priesthood points to a new priesthood. An old temple points to a new temple. Ultimately, the, some of the last very words of Jesus in the gospel or in the, in the Bible is, I make all things new. Jesus is saying he is fulfilling all this newness of, the old, of all the prophets, but especially in a very concrete way, Ezekiel. And so our response to this in many ways is worship. Renewal of sacred liturgy in the temples of our church and in the temples of our bodies to understand that we were made for worship and that it is through the sacraments, especially baptism and the Eucharist, that we are cleansed and that we are reborn. We are cleansed through baptism, and this new covenant comes by way, is, is sealed by way of the covenant of, uh, in Christ's blood, right, in the Eucharist that we receive. But again, I think Ezekiel is very unsatisfying if you don't read Revelation, which is also a very good book. Um, so that's for another time in the fall. But from here on out, we will move to the last of our four major prophets, which is Daniel. So for next week, read all of Daniel. It's only 14 chapters. And after, by the time we have next week, we'll actually have finished all the major prophets, and then we'll start diving into the minor prophets. Let's close in a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of the priesthood. We thank you for the gift of the temple. We know that we are made to worship you, we know that you make all things new. Where we need newness of life, where sin has become um, a source in our life, we ask that you send fresh waters to cleanse us of our sins so that we may dwell with you forever as you have called us. We thank you for the gate of Mary, you who brought, Mary who brought the true temple, Jesus Christ, to us all. We pray that through her intercession we may Go back to Jesus and understand his love for us this day and every day forward, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of RTB. If you have questions you would like answered on the podcast, you can email them to Father Tim at tmergen at uwcatholic.org. That's T-M-E-R-G-E-N at uwcatholic.org. Thanks, and be assured of my prayers for you as you read the Bible. Thank you.